0: There's been a lot of theories put forward about why I allegedly killed my son. But I still know I didn't do it.
1: This is Cookie, a woman we represent at the Centre for Criminal Appeals. We are a non-profit law practice who specialise in wrongful convictions And my job is to investigate the cases of women who we believe to have suffered a miscarriage of justice. If you haven't heard part one of Cookie's story, we strongly advise you to go back and start there. We should warn you that both this episode and the one before contains distressing content. Cookie's baby son, Petey, died at 12 weeks old in 2002. And although it was originally a suspected case of sudden infant death syndrome, when we left Cookie, she had just been sentenced to life in prison for allegedly smothering her baby. This is Surviving Injustice. Untold Stories from the Wrongfully Convicted. A podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals.
0: My mother had seen a clairvoyant and she'd asked me to go with her and I said no. But she took a ring of mine to the clairvoyant. And the clairvoyant wouldn't accept any money from my mother when she found out what the ring contained. Um, Because she said that I would experience a lot of pain and that I would be incarcerated. And you just kind of think... You're going to get convicted, because nobody's asking the right questions. And that day, I'd made sure that at home I'd left a list on the pinboard in the kitchen of birth dates, so that my husband could remember to send cards. <laughs> and I'd made sure that the food in the freezer were stocked up with individual meals, so we didn't have to worry about cooking. He could just pop it in the microwave and be done because I figured that once I was convicted, he'd need a bit of time to get his head together. I was sat at the back of the court. I got told I was sentenced to life. The guard that's with me is wanting me to move. I've been taken into a holding cell to start with. I'm locked in there. Then I've been told that my legal team wants to see me and I've been escorted to another room. My solicitor and barrister are in there. Barrist is one side of the table, there's a chair for me the other, Slister stood up by a shaded window. And they've asked me if I'm okay. Do you understand what's just happened? And for reasons I can't explain, I said yes, but shit happens. And that was it. That's how I accepted a life sentence. When I first got convicted with a life sentence, I was told to expect a tariff of 24 years. The tariff is the minimum sentence that you serve as a part of your life sentence and it allows them to calculate things like parole hearings and when you can start going out on day release, when you can go home and see your family, things like that. Depending on the severity of your charge affects how much they increase that tariff by. I remember getting the letter, sitting in my room, reading it, and being absolutely disgusted. I asked to speak to the life of Governor, and he sat there and he said, I understand that, you know, you're going to be upset, and that 12 years is a long... And that was as far as he got. 12 years isn't a long time. 12 years horrified me, because... People believed that I had killed my son. They'd believed it enough to convict me. And they'd only given me 12 years. My son's life is worth more than 12 years. They expect you to burst into tears. They didn't even see me cry over my son's death. They're not going to see me cry over a life sentence. And at the end of the day, a life sentence is neither here nor there when you're innocent. It doesn't matter how long they keep you when you're innocent because you just have to consider clearing your name. And whether they keep you for one year or 50 years, you're doing that without your kids. You're doing that with people thinking that you killed your son without anyone understanding what you're going through as a parent When you're living your life like that, one day seems like 50 years anyway. So being told you've got a life sentence is nothing. That first week when I was in prison, I was actually quite detached from my own emotions about myself. My concerns were my children and my husband. How were they coping? How were they managing? What was he having to say to the children about me not going to see them? my immediate concerns, like I say, husband and children. I would accept whatever conditions they laid down so long as I could see my children. Obviously I wanted to spend more time with them. My eldest child was getting ready for school then. It's hard. It's hard not being able to be there for her. and. You know, when she was at home, we'd all have been to look at a school that she liked, and it was just down the road, and it meant she could walk through the park to get to school. Me and the boys would take her to school through the park, and we'd pick her up and we'd come back through the park to get home again. And she quite liked the look of that school. And when the school term started, and I hadn't been buying school uniforms and I wasn't taking it there, that was hard. It's still hard now, but not as painful as it was, to know that you've missed out the entirety of your children's schooling. You've missed it all. You've never taken a child to school, you've never been to a parents' evening, sports day, met school friends, got involved with school trips and... revision, exams, arguments with school friends. Anxiety about whether to go to the school prom. At no point back then did my children want to discuss it with anyone. Until when my son was three. The children had come to visit me in a prison. And at the end of the visit, when the officers are telling all the visitors to leave, I've had a hug with my daughter. And my son sat on my lap for his hug goodbye. And while I've got an officer telling me the children have to leave, I've got my three-year-old boy... Sitting on my lap, asking me, why didn't I love his brother enough? Why did I kill his brother? Why didn't I love him enough? And do I love him enough? Which meant my boy, my three-year-old boy, had spent a year believing I'd killed his brother because I didn't love him and questioning whether I loved him enough to let him live. No child should have to go through that. I told him, That I loved him, I loved his sister, I loved his baby brother, and that people had made a mistake. But I had always loved all three of them and always would love all three of them. I told him that I hadn't killed his brother and we were trying to find out what had happened. But how much does a three-year-old take in? Fighting for an appeal started pretty much the day I got convicted. I started thinking, right, got to appeal this, got to get the answers, got to know what happened. Even before my trial I had questions that I wasn't getting answers to. I hoped some of those answers would come out in the trial, they didn't. So as soon as I was convicted it was a case of having to look for answers. And then it made sense that if I found answers then they could go towards an appeal. It's like people imagine that appeals are easy to get, and they're really not, they're really not. And things you think are going to qualify you for an appeal actually don't. It's amazing the number of prisoners and prison staff who assume that appeals are easy to get, and that if you qualify for an appeal, it's gonna be quick. The day I got convicted, Angela Cannings won her appeal and there was the Cannings ruling. In the van going from the court to the prison, the guard that was driving the prison van told me if my trial had been going on for another hour and a half it would have been thrown out. <laughs> so that's, it's like, okay, great, okay. So you, then you want to know what's going on, what's happened. And so you go into prison and you know something's happened and you're trying to find out about all of that and your legal team come to you and say, look, the Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, is going to look at all cases where a child has died, a child under one has died in the last year and, and um, where the parents have been convicted. He's going to look at all of those cases and see if any of them are unsafe convictions. Now, I got told that there were 63 cases... My legal team told me this, my then legal team, that there were 63 cases and the Attorney-General, Lord Goldsmith, had referred three as unsafe convictions to the Court of appeal. There was mine and there were two men.
1: And so Cookie cemented her spot in a bizarre and prominent juncture in British legal history. Cookie's case is one of a long line of miscarriages of justice where mothers have been convicted of killing their babies when in fact the death may be the result of sudden infant death syndrome or cot death, as it's more commonly known. Some of you might remember the case of Sally Clark. In 1999, Sally was convicted of the double murder of her two infant sons. Her conviction was based on memorable statistics given by a medical expert on the case. The expert in question told the jury that the chances of a mother losing two babies to sudden infant death syndrome were 1 in 73 million. Now, those figures were later found to be entirely misleading, but had effectively slammed the prison gates on Sally. It took additional medical testing and two appeals for Sally's conviction to be overturned. By this point, she'd already served more than three years inside. Following this, Angela Cannings, another mother convicted of murdering two of her infant children, was exonerated in 2003 because of hotly contested medical evidence presented about the causes of death. Her case set a precedent and triggered the Attorney General's review. The judgment stated in cases like the present, if the outcome of the trial depends exclusively or almost exclusively on serious disagreement between distinguished and reputable experts, it will often be unwise and therefore unsafe to proceed. And so Cookie's case was referred to the Court of Appeal, and her case was re examined in light of the Canning's ruling. However, the court took a narrow view and held that there was, in fact, enough evidence to uphold Cookie's conviction. And so, after 18 months in prison, Cookie lost her appeal. So my conviction was held. How did it feel having your appeal
0: denied? I didn't want to win that appeal.
1: Which I know sounds really
0: odd when you're maintaining innocence to say I didn't want to win an appeal. I accept that. I didn't ever want to win an appeal on a point of law. Because to me, that's not winning an appeal. I think the appeal system is very much barbaric. Because when you go for an appeal, as a defendant, you're kept very much out of it. You're not given an opportunity to get up and give evidence at all. You can't get up there and say, well, actually, I want to tell you three who are deciding my fate what actually happened. They're allowed to read reports from everybody else. They're allowed to read reports and interview people that were present at your trial. But they're not allowed to have you speak. And I don't see how that is allowed in this country, that you could have three complete strangers pass judgment on you without speaking to you. I don't understand how that's allowed in what is supposed to be an advanced justice system. And there's so many times your legal team says, right, we're ready to go for an appeal, we're going to submit papers. A couple of months later, you're still waiting for answers when they turn around and say, well, actually, legal aid won't let us do it. We can't get the funding. I don't think that proving your innocence should be about money. It's not just saying that justice is dependent on finances, it's also saying equality is dependent on finances. Because if you've got the money, you can do it. If you haven't got the money, you can't. That means that we do not have equality in our justice system.
1: I just want to say on record, working for a criminal appeals organisation, you're exactly right. We get so many letters from people inside saying, please help, and, You know, here are the grounds that I think I have. And the appeal system is so restrictive, in fact, that grounds that you might logically think would qualify you for an appeal, in fact, legally don't. Um, And it is a time-consuming, strenuous process that is not easy to navigate whatsoever. So, you know, I don't want people listening to think this is just you. It's... um, No, you're 100% (laughs) correct. The appeal system is really, really tough. The denied appeal didn't spell the end for Cookie's attempts to overturn her conviction. And I'll tell you more about that in episode three, but there is a grisly consequence to a protracted appeals process involving a deceased body.
0: My legal team felt that because of the appeal process, Pete's body should be kept until we'd explored all avenues. So he was actually kept for about ten years before we were able to have a funeral. I believe that as a parent, if my child dies... Before I do, then I am duty-bound to be the last person to hold my son. That is my responsibility, I am the one who should prepare him for his funeral. Whether we like it or not, that was Petey's only party, so to speak. It was the only covering that Petey ever had for him. I should have bathed my son, I should have done his hair, I should have chosen his clothes for his funeral. I got a letter telling me they were having his funeral um, within a week. So I hadn't been able to do any of the preparations for making sure my family were aware of what I wanted for the funeral. I hadn't been able to get an application into the prison system for authorization to go. Nothing like that. I wasn't even told where his funeral was being held. That was all kept from me. The day. Peter's funeral I was in segregation in the prison system because it was felt I was unsafe to be on my own and I found that incredibly difficult I don't want any parent to ever have to go through that pain it's horrendous maintaining innocence in prison you are the lowest of the low if you're maintaining innocence for a crime against a minor The first time I got hit in prison, I'm coming out of the workshop and there's another girl coming, um, she's in front of me and we've got to walk through two members of staff who do the pat-downs to make sure you've got no things you shouldn't have on you. And she's been patted down, the other girl has. And then she stopped to talk to the officer. So I'm being patted down by one officer when the girl in front of me has turned around and gone straight into my face with her fist. And the officer stood back and let her hit me again. I don't believe in raising my hand to a person. I don't believe in raising my voice to a person. So I stood there and took it. And she hit me again. And then the staff pulled her off. I know that when I first went into prison, the fact that I was quite upfront about what I was convicted of and the fact that I stated quite loudly that I was maintaining innocence, um, I got told made me seem quite cocky. And apparently that was the reason I got physically attacked so many times. It was because I was too cocky and people wanted to knock me down a peg or two, apparently. Um, But as it goes on, you, you hear comments, you have comments directed at you that lets you know people object strongly to what you're convicted of. And they find it even worse that you're maintaining innocence. I had six months of having dirty mops rubbed in my face. Um, I had perfume sprayed in my eyes. I got threatened with having boiling hot water thrown over me. I've had people go into my room and screw up the photographs of my children. At one of the prisons I was in, there was a an individual there who decided to write a letter to me claiming it came from my son who had died, my PT. She was very proud that she'd done the letter. Um, I mentioned it to a member of staff, said that I wasn't comfortable with it. They didn't believe me that it had been written. So I decided to just accept that and hope it didn't happen again rather than creating waves. It did happen again, she wrote another letter, claiming it was for my son Petey, so I actually spoke to staff again, different member of staff, she didn't believe me, so I actually showed her the letter, um, and it was a case of, okay, nothing was done about it. Maintaining innocence is um, not a popular stance in a prison environment. If you admit guilt, even if you lie and admit guilt, once you've said that you accept what you're accused of, then things are a lot easier in prison. Progressing for your sentence means, as a lifer, it's about Working towards your first parole hearing which is where they look at what you've done over your time so far and look at how you're coping with things and what behaviours have changed, what courses you've done and then deciding whether you are suitable to go into open conditions and start having day release. Once you're convicted they tell you that they want you to do offending behaviour work, is what it's usually called and that consists of things like anger management, You can do courses on relationships and building healthier relationships, courses on um, positive communication. The prison system tends to like everyone to do victim empathy. So that's looking at the crime you've committed, the impact that's had on not just your immediate victim, but that victim's family and your own family, because they're victims of your actions as well. And if you didn't participate in offending behaviour work, because, like myself, you maintain innocence, then that was held against you. So when you had your first parole hearing, you weren't classed as suitable for day release because you hadn't done the courses to prove that your offending behaviour had altered. If you do do the courses, then that builds up your reputation within the prison because you're seen as cooperating. So staff are more likely to help you progress into better jobs or get you referrals to other departments if you need help and support for things. They're more likely to listen to you and work with you if you're doing the courses.
1: Did you do the courses?
0: I have not done any offending behaviour work courses. I chose not to do offending behaviour work because I've never offended. But even the heading, offending behaviour, I have no offending behaviour, I've never offended. The whole time I was in prison, I objected to anyone calling me an offender. At one point, I chose to refer myself to bereavement counselling. And the woman that came to see me said that I had to be angry to kill someone. So I decided at that point, I did not need that kind of bereavement counselling. Because in her eyes, I was an offender. And if she's seeing me as an offender before she even sits and talks to me, there's no point in us working together. I've always been quite headstrong on that point. I am not an offender. I am not an ex-offender. Call me a prisoner, call me an inmate, call me a convict, fine, but not offender. I still stand by that. This is a letter I wrote to my then-solicitor, 2nd of June, 2013. I know I must seem impatient, but I really do believe I cannot survive much longer as things stand. Every day I wake up wishing I hadn't lasted the night. My son has been dead for over ten years now. I've done almost nine and a half in prison. In just over a year and a half I will have done my tariff If I had done what I'm accused of I'd be doing resettlement in the community now I am struggling with the fact that by being innocent life is so much harder I'm at my wits end I'm scared of myself I'm scared of the fact that I am beginning to wish I was guilty I'm scared of the fact that I've started contemplating lying and telling the prison that I am guilty. I know I'm not. I know 100% certain that I did not kill my son. It just seems that if I said I did, then my life would be easier. And that genuinely is how it is in prison. There are days where you just think, what is the point of any of it? You know, you come up against so many brick walls. You're coming up against brick walls with the justice system and the appeal process. You're coming up against brick walls within the prison system. You're coming up against abuse, hostility from prisoners and prison staff. So there are days where you think, what is the point? There are many occasions where I thought about killing myself so that my son could be at peace. In the prison system, there was a particular tree that I used to go to, and for some reason, that tree became a connection to me and my son. I know that under that tree, I buried prayers, I suppose you'd call them. Sometimes just asking for strength. Sometimes asking that my children will be okay. But I needed some serious help. So what went under the tree was a prayer, a picture of me and a picture of my son. So yeah, that tree's my son's tree, always will be. Sweet cherry blossom. In one of the rooms of my house, in one of my boxes, I actually have the seeds from that tree. In some ways I was very lucky in prison because I I made, quite early on, a couple of really, really good friends who I'm still in touch with now. They believed in my innocence, which helps, I think, having somebody else there that believes what you're saying and can see how unfairly you're being treated and how you're being discriminated against. Because otherwise you just think you're going mad, you think you're imagining everything. To have somebody else say to you, actually, no, I did see that, that shouldn't have happened. it's like, Okay, I'm not crazy after all, it is really going on. I'm not imagining it. Yeah, having somebody there to let you know you're not alone with it all is a big thing. I'm the luckiest woman alive. There's no two ways about that. I'm luckier than you two will ever be. I had my son for 12 weeks. I got to hear his laughter, I got to see his smile he held my hand i held his i hugged him you guys never got that some massive thing missing from your lives that i've had so i know i'm the luckiest person you know and yeah it was only 12 weeks but i'm thankful for them and i wouldn't want them to be gone from my life i could never wish not to have had those 12 weeks so i know i'm incredibly lucky and that That makes it easier in some ways.
1: Surviving Injustice is a podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals and is produced and edited by Lizzie Norton, May Robson and me, Naima Sakande. If you're curious about what the Centre for Criminal Appeals does or you want to know more about Cookie, you can find photographs and some of her poetry and writing on our website at www.criminalappeals.org.uk forward slash podcast. Please be sure to stay in touch in other ways as well. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at C4CrimAppeals, that's for the number four, or tell us what you think by shooting us an email to mail at criminalappeals.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again to Jake Tyler, who created our logo. And Cookie's story isn't over. Make sure you stay tuned for part three.